0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of New Narratives Political Agenda, our fortnightly podcast on contemporary issues and current affairs in Singapore. I'm your host PJ Thumb and with me as usual is my brilliant co-host, New Narratives Editor-in-Chief Kirsten Hunt.
1: Hello everyone, Happy How are you New Year. Kirsten? Good, it's good to be back for 2019.
0: How'd you spend your Christmas and uh, New Year break?
1: I did absolutely nothing and I watched 21 hours of TV in three days. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I kind of uh, ordered everyone in in New Narrative to take a break between Christmas and uh, New Year because this is, it's been a really tough year and and everyone works incredibly hard so I felt it was really important that I told everyone, take a break. Anyway, it's good to to be back and this week we have two fantastic guests with us, uh, Tan T. Singh and Jolovan Wang. Now, Tsing is um, perhaps best known as a former detainee f- uh, of Operation Spectrum back in 1987, and he is uh, an active citizen um, in in civil society work. A founder member of uh, the civil rights group Function Eight. Um, which seeks to, which was formed to restart discussion and exchanges in society that have been suppressed. So Teasing is still incredibly active in civil society and civil rights work. Welcome, Teasing.
2: thank you. How are yeah. you today? Yeah, I'm good today. <laughs> 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 okay.
0: Uh, also with us is Jolovan Wam, who you may whose name you may have seen in the news headlines recently. Jolovan Wam is of course a social worker and a very civil activist as he likes to say, and he tries he's trying to really mainstream the idea of social work. What do you mean by that, Jolovan?
3: Um well, people tend to look at social workers as just do-gooders. So I think it's important that um, we realize that it's important for people to know that social work is not just about doing good. It's not just about welfare work. It's also about um, empowerment, upholding the rights of people and social justice. Right.
0: Well said. Now, of course, um, you've been in the headlines recently. You've just been found guilty of a number of charges, including uh, Skyping Hong Kong activist Joshua Wong during an indoor discussion, discussion forum. Mm-hmm. and uh, not signing a police statement which you hadn't actually seen yourself and had not been given a copy of.
3: I actually saw the statement, but okay. I didn't want to sign it because I wasn't going to be given a copy.
0: Right. Yeah. And um, I think you mentioned in court that this is, this is an important principle that you uh, tell the, uh, the migrant workers that you work with because um, it's really important to get a copy of everything you sign.
3: Right, yes, I, that's what I said. I mean, um, I, I said it quite facetiously actually towards the, uh, to the police officer, but he still recorded it down in my statement. But what I really meant by that was that it is important to always have a copy of what you sign, especially when whatever is in the statement could be used against you. And in Singapore's context, where there are no video cameras in interview rooms, where you don't have an independent... Police complaints mechanism. Um, you need to do what you can to protect yourself.
0: Right. Yeah. That just makes very intuitive sense. If you mm. sign anything, if you sign a contract, but then you don't have a copy of the contract, you know how do you know what you sign? Right? Yes. Yeah.
3: Yes. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. So before we get to our main topic this week, we come to our regular segment called hashtag Ask New Narrative. So what kind of questions have we got this week, Yassin?
1: So this week we've got comments and questions about actually how we record and have these political agenda discussions. So people have asked questions about how we frame them. You know whether we are uh, active parts of the conversation. So PJ and I whether we are active parts of the conversation or if we are just here as interviewers to ask questions. So it's been a bit divided. Some people like that we participate and that we have our own opinions, and other people say that we should just be asking questions and not directing. Uh, the conversation
0: right okay this is a a very interesting question that's also actually relevant to our topic at hand in many ways about the nature of participation in politics and and change Um, with political agenda what we try to do is to have Kirsten and I as part of the conversation responding to what we're hearing, you know, and not being um, or trying to be impartial. And this is really important to us because, first of all, there's no such thing as total objectivity in this world, right? Everyone has a perspective and everyone's perspective matters. And if we start pretending that there's such thing as objectivity, it actually does a big disservice to politics because it creates um, a a myth, right? A, a, A fictitious idea that there can be someone who is totally impartial, disinterested, not part of the conversation. Politics matters to all of us. And what we're trying to do with political agenda is model that behaviour and show that we are part of the conversation. And what's more, demonstrate how this itself is politics. Because when you start talking about um, this very impartial, you know, neutral way of approaching politics, It removes it from the day-to-day life and becomes something very artificial and stilted. But what politics is mostly about is people sitting around a table arguing with each other about the best way to lead our lives, about the problems that we collectively face. And so political agenda wants to underscore that point by helping all of you feel like you're sitting in on a conversation. So that's what we're trying to do with with political agenda, and it, it runs through this whole theme that we have of new narrative where um, you know, we don't pretend to some sort of fictitious form of objectivity or disinterest, that we understand that everyone can and should have a position and should articulate their what they believe about a certain issue. So that's, uh, that's Ask New Narrative, hashtag Ask New Narrative for this week. And uh, as always, if you have a question for us that you'd like us to answer, so tweet us or or just comment um, on our uh, Facebook pages with hashtag AskNewNarrative and we will pick a question to answer in a future episode. Okay, so back to our topic today where we're actually talking about um, social change and the role of protest as part of social change. And so with the two guests that we have today, they have been... Both very active in um, cry, trying to create social change through the art of protest. So, Teasing, let's, let's start with you, right? Now, you've been um, you know, actively involved in social change and social, civil rights
2: activism in a long time. And uh, how did you get involved to begin with? I was kind of lucky to be at the right place in the right time. I went to the Singapore Polytechnic. In the mid-70s. Mid-70s was a time where you have the wave of English educated student activism started in 1972 in the Singapore University of Singapore University. And at that point of time, the movement or rather the activism in uh Singapore, University of Singapore affected the Polish student. I mean two factors that, that is very important. Uh, one was the autonomy of the of the student union. Then, the student union, when I was a student, has a lot of leeway. It was an organization that was autonomous in the sense that it its activity, it has its own objective. It it doesn't come. Uh, it is a registered body with the Registrar of Society. Uh, it has its own constitution. Its leadership are uh, elected by the members of the, uh, all the student in, in, the, in the polytechnic. So it, it, it do whatever it sought to do. Okay, can you just set the stage a bit for
0: our listeners? Hmm. Um, because I think a lot of people today, right, have no idea like why students would protest and the kind of how people think of protest in the 70s in the 60s right protest has played a big role in singapore's independence protest against you know the the british and protest uh, both for and against the pap government and so this was a
2: very normal thing back then right for me particularly the main thing is the kind of awareness that you come when you have knowledge of certain things, like social injustices that happen around you. And with this awareness, sometimes you are asked to take a position. With an organization like a student union, then it allows us to take a position that sometimes that confronts or sometimes that has to take a position that is opposed to whatever the the, the, the authority at that point of time deem. So if it confront, then we have to articulate our position clearer. And if have to be protest, then it should then so be it. Then we have to protest because it's quite clear from for us from those days that actually the authority don't yield if you don't put your demand. They they never yield because you don't get. They don't concede. Power do not concede without the, the demand. So, if something that you have, if you took a position, and you need to make that position clear, then do whatever you, you you have at your at your exposure at your disposal.
1: So, to give give listeners a sort of idea, what were some of these issues that the student activists were, um, you know, raising and protesting about?
2: Uh, one of the example is the we call it the anti bus fare hike. That time when the uh, SBS wanted to increase the bus fare by five cent or ten cent, I cannot remember. Of course, the way that the ministry or, and and the bus company put it was that was oh, only increase of five cent and ten cent. But from the receiving end, we are we are, a lot of the students come from very poor uh, family. So five cent and ten cent is a lot if you add up every day five cent and ten cent. So Obviously, any hike in the uh, say in the bus uh, bus fare will have quite a huge impact financially on on the students. So we decided that we should actually articulate our our objection to this increase. So the question is, of course, how the government announced uh, they they didn't even consult us. So we decided that okay, we, we need something. The first thing we did was, of course, we said, okay, since this uh, is impacting so many students and student uh, society in general, we decided that we should print our statement, uh, issue a statement, and then we distribute this statement to the the houses, uh, to the HDB houses and so on. So at that point of time, we didn't know, I mean, we were not concerned about whether, whether was it legal or illegal. We just want to have our point make known to them. Obviously we also would feel that these statements are also important for people who who will take bus. So the natural thing for us is also to dispute this statement at the bus terminal. One group went to the Jurong bus terminal to dispute this letter during the during the office hour. We recognize that was the biggest number of people you can catch. So we distribute all this uh, statement to all the people who get Whoever we saw. Lah. So instead of responding to our statement, what the authority did was that the police actually arrested, heard, actually not arrest maybe a bit too, too harsh a word, but they, they basically heard us all, took the whole group of students who were distributing leaflet at the uh, Jurong Station all to the Jurong Police Station and kept us for a few hours until the office hours over. When there's no practically nobody in the and then we release us. So that was one, one way they responded to us, uh, which of course makes us extremely unhappy. So obviously the next step for us to do is that this statement is not working. So we escalate to the second level, which means that we actually say that maybe we should get petition. But so basically we just went down while distributing this leaflet to the to the HDB, we get everybody to sign sign a sta- uh, petition. So we get thousands and thousands, I think amounting to more than 10,000 of these uh, signature. So we make a duplicate of it. One copy we send to SBS. At that time it wasn't called SBS. I cannot remember what exactly it was called. Then the other copy we send to the Ministry of Transport. SBS was basically sent out. A general manager took our thing and said, noted that took, noted our complaint. Whereas the ministry at that point of time didn't even bother to to come and receive the signature, the petition. So because of that kind of response, made us very unhappy. So we decided that we should escalate into the third level. We decided that we maybe boycott Bing as a way to respond to, to it. So basically, we, we form these small groups of three to four students wearing anti-bus fare height uh, T-shirt, taking parts of our leaflet, we'll hop onto a bus and declare to the conductor that we are not paying because we are anti-bus fare. height. So most of the time, we... We don't receive any what I call, big objection from the bus conductor. Last time there's the bus conductor, it's not just a driver alone. They kind of amused, more amused than than mm. disturbed that we did not pay. So we was what was so what we do is we go up to the bus, we're not paying, we having an anti-bus manhide, we distribute to everybody in the every passenger that we see in the in the bus. Uh, then after two, three stops, we 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 drop. Then we went on to another bus. We do that. Then we go around Singapore like that. Then nothing happened. So at the end, we feel that, we need probably to escalate to the third level, which is what we know we demonstrate. We wrote banners, then we just, then we were quite fearful. We were not uh, quite fearful of, of doing action like this. So in the end, we only demonstrate within our campus. So in a way, you can say that it was a failure to, to ask. Uh. Anyway, the, the bus rate also <laughs> increases. We, we, we did not succeed in anything. But I guess it, what we feel is that at least we got to articulate what we feel is our perspective of the whole thing. And we got to also articulate our displeasure over this uh, action by the bus company and the government to allow them to, to increase. And so in the
0: end, you weren't arrested or you weren't, you know, nothing happened to you. You just went through all these steps and okay, maybe the government didn't respond, but nothing also happened to you.
2: Yeah, no, nothing happened to us. But we don't think that huh? anything will happen to us. We're just doing whatever that is called upon us to, to do. Because at the, at the point of time, it's like if we wanted a dialogue, if do want to talk to us, we, the only way for us is to demonstrate. We wanted to make sure, to articulate. That's, that's the only response that we can, we can think of. The one that I, I mentioned earlier on where a group of students was hurt into Jurong police stations. So I was not one of those but what I heard from the report later on is that actually the police also do not know what to do with this bunch of young people. So they basically give them, ask them one Milo or not. <laughs> give them Milo and Give them some biscuit Uh, Then let them sit in one corner Until the office hour over They think that someone must have told them The office hour is over It's now quite quiet Okay, you all can go home
0: I think a famous trade unionist once said You know, a strike or a protest Is not actually about the issue itself, because no one wants to strike, no one wants to, No one wakes up in the morning and goes, oh, I'm going to protest today. You know, people just want to get on their lives. People have things to do. Standing outside in the hot sun protesting is not something that anyone wants to do, right? They want to get on with their lives. But it, it, it happens, you know, strikes and protests end up happening, not just because it's an escalation or it's a way of getting a point across, but because there's a an immense lack of respect. If the other side is willing to negotiate, then of course you'd negotiate. But if they treat you with such utter disrespect and completely ignore your um, you know, uh, grievances, then you feel that you know, in order to uh, make yourself known, you have to protest or so you have to strike. And that sounds exactly like what you went through. Yeah,
2: yeah. In a way, sometimes it's more like you feel very indignant about certain things. That it seems that there's no other way that you're not getting the kind of response to hear your your, your indignance. Then you have no choice You do something like this. And you, at that point, of time, I think it's almost, you can say that it's, it's very legitimate to yourself. Lah. In fact, this this uh, demonstration that, that on the bus pad was my second demonstration I attended. The first one was in 1976 when they came and arrested our student leader at the day of our nomination day, our nomination of the student election day. And the st- union position was always, you, put, you, you arrested all these people under the Internal Security Act. The student union always want you to put, give them a fair open trial. That's that's all the student union demanded. You can you can you have a lot so much allegation so much accusation. You just put them on a fair, open trial. But of course, you don't get any response. So to that kind of situation, uh, that was the first demonstration I go to because I feel indignant enough, and those student leaders were, were like, big brother to you at that point in time, that you would prepare to go up and say, hey, look, we need to make this call. Maybe the government don't know how to read our our demands. <laughs> and so we need to make it in bigger letter. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the other thing that really strikes me about your story, right, of course, is that nothing happened. You know, the way that uh, strikes or protests are depicted now it's as if if anybody just starts to strike the whole world of singapore will just fall apart right there's so much fear about this you know oh strikes are evil and they're gonna uh, cause you know massive disruptions to singapore but what you're telling me is you, you guys did this you escalated you striked you i mean you protested and the government just ignored you and then there nothing happened and not only that this is the 1970s during singapore's biggest period of economic growth and social change right when our society was not just being fundamentally shifted but when we were regularly posting economic growth of eight ten percent every year and you guys had this big protest and nothing happened you know and that i think really shows how overblown people have uh, you know this whole perception of, of strikes or protests as as uh, I think, equating it to massive, massive riots or something, right? A protest doesn't necessarily mean uh, massive disruptions. Protests can and often are very peaceful, and the government doesn't have to respond in an you know excessive way to protests. Indeed, they could just ignore protests, and they'll still get their way, and they'll still go on, you know. Um, which then comes, of course, to our second guest. And, and uh, Jolovan, of course, you have been very much uh, a victim or, or interacted with this very different way of looking at protest, uh, which, um, you know, in our very different social circumstances, some 40, 50 years later, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the circumstances have been very different for you. Let's put it that way. Yes. Yeah. So let's just start the same question. And how does how does do you you know solidly middle upper middle class maybe Chinese English educated you know how do how did you get into social work and into social civil activism?
3: I I started out in social work as a social worker for migrant workers. So the reason I wanted to get involved with migrant workers was because I realized, and this was about 15 years ago, I realized that there were just so many of them in Singapore, but then I was always very curious about, you know, what their concerns were, what were the issues. And I didn't learn all that in school Yeah, because the NUS social work program hardly talked about minority rights and minority issues. I mean, they don't really talk about human rights and social justice anyway. So, so it was really out of curiosity. Yeah, but also because I, my family has uh, lived in domestic worker, so I kind of knew what it was like to be uh, a domestic worker having to you know live with your employer. And then, sh- and then when I was growing up, she, she, she shared the same room as I did. And I always thought that was quite, you know, and when, when I think back, I was like, you know, that, that must have been quite, um, uncomfortable for her. I mean, she you know didn't have any privacy, and and she had to share a room with a child, and you know it must have been quite irritating to her sometimes because I would you know of course being a young child irritate her and talk to her, and you know then she had to entertain me and deal with all my all my nonsense. So so I kind of became very sympathetic um, towards that. So so that's how I um, decided to you know get involved with home, which was the organisation. Uh, that was founded in 2004. And then from there, I learned a lot about how the system works. Yeah, and I saw just how dehumanizing, how problematic it was that you know, we didn't have enough uh, protections for the workers. Yeah, and then I realized that you know, they couldn't even fight for their own rights yeah, because they couldn't sit on the executive committee of the organization um, you know there were rules and regulations saying that if they did anything which were political or socially undesirable, um, they could be punished, they could lose their employment, yeah, so they couldn 't even form their own unions. So I realized that you know civil rights um, political rights, the right to assert yourself was something which was denied to them completely. It was a systemic um, uh, denial of these rights, and yet they were facing all these problems so uh, so that was how I got started and and, and appreciated uh, on a more concrete level what you know um, macro and structural problems were. Yeah, so that was the beginning of my my consciousness when I realized that you know these people that I was working with and you know simple things that I took for granted like rest days and not having to work twenty four hours a day, uh, seven days a week. You know things like that just started to 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 make me realize something was really really wrong about the situation.
0: Yeah. And how did you go from there then to deciding to take a more active oppositional stance, you know as in what is the point you decided that you needed to to do protests instead of just working with the system as we're told? Well, I guess um the way which me
3: and my colleagues worked were was it wasn't just about um making noise, right so to speak. Yeah, there was a lot of engagement. So we engaged with the government a lot. There were a lot of dialogue sessions, and we talked with partners. Yeah. So, um, and we tried to change things. Yeah, from from within. Yeah, through these dialogues, because we felt that hey, you know, this is really common sense to us. So shouldn't it be common sense to you? Yeah. But of course, we realised that wasn't the case, lah, Because power and politics comes into the picture, and makes and makes progress. Difficult, right? So, um, so, so we we did a lot of things like we would issue press press releases. We would write letters to the newspapers. Um, we would give talks um, in schools to communities. Yeah. So we realized that it was important um, to raise awareness. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I wouldn't say that these methods were not effective. Yeah so um so th- th- there were some changes yeah especially when stories appear in in the media because then it it brings attention to an issue yeah and then it's, it offers you a platform to talk about it yeah and then um that help keeps the dialogue going yeah and then there were also NMPs you know that we would talk to to try and get them to raise issues in parliament yeah so um so these were things that we were all doing collectively as um, people who were interested in migrant worker rights, yeah, not just me and home, but also colleagues you know, in other organizations like TWC2 and all that. Yeah, so we worked together collaboratively yeah, to try and push the agenda forward. Yeah, but, um, but then I also in the course of my my journey as a social worker, I also realized it's not just about migrant worker issues. right. So um, if you believe in human rights, you believe in justice. Um, you believe in human rights and justice for all. Yeah. And then um, and freedom of expression, the right to protest, freedom of association all comes together with that. And I saw the inability to do that as very symptomatic of an authoritarian, the authoritarian regime that we live in. So the fact that we can't protest, the fact that our freedom of expression is limited, has also got to do with the fact that our unions are not independent our media is muzzled, they, they, are, they are not free, they are not independent, they can't publish what they want. So all these things I saw as part of a whole yeah, that needed um, to be tackled. Yeah. So, so that's how then I also became interested in um, the right to protest and freedom of expression issues because um, it, a lot of it has to do with um, transparency also and freedom of information. So if we don't have um, the right to advocate the way we want, if we don't have transparency, we don't have due process, we don't have access to information, then how do we make our society a better place? Yeah, So so our social progress is also very dependent upon our civil and political rights. Yeah, so if we as citizens um, don't feel that we can participate fully in public life, political life, then how are we able to make our communities better?
0: And we, what was your first... like? you you know act of i suppose radical protest in the singapore context right in another country <laughs> yeah. you know what you've done is not at all radical yes, it's very conservative. Barely qualifies a process <laughs> um my i think it
3: was for the first protest protest i attended was involved uh someone who was going to be executed actually so i know the anti death penalty activists uh, whenever there is an execution they would um, organize a vigil, yeah. So that was actually my first like protest illegal assembly, yeah. Because I I knew that uh, there there were in, in in those vigils there were there was no permit, yeah. But but it was very much like teasing, you know. And my my attitude was you know I'm not doing anything that's wrong. So and it's just a small group of us. We're not a threat to social disorder. I mean we're not a threat to social order. And I feel very strongly about this. So just do la, just go. You know? So so that was also my my attitude.
0: Um and for the causes that, that you were involved in? I mean, um I I know of course we know of your protest uh about um Operation Spectrum on the on the MRT. Uh, yes. But was that was that like the first protest that you personally organized that was framed explicitly as a protest or did you have earlier um, um, events?
3: Yes, I had earlier events, but they were all... They were like solidarity. Solidarity events. events, and they were at Honglin Park. Right. Yeah, so I think that was um, the first thing that I did, which was a mm. radical departure from the usual events that I organized. Yeah, so um, so I did it because, um, I mean, over the years, I've always felt a very deep affinity towards um, the op- Operation Spectrum um, detainees and what ha- happened to them yeah, and I, I guess part of it is personal because they were also involved in migrant worker activism and so am I so there's a connection there and I also realized that after, and also through talking to people through reading I realized that after, after Spectrum civil society basically just went dead you know people just got very scared yeah, so that to me was like a very important moment yeah, in civil society history and and I always felt that we always we need to keep reminding people that this happened and that um, the detainees never um, got any justice. So so I talked about doing this MLT protest with a couple of friends who were also involved, and and we thought it was a very novel idea. Yeah, because you I mean when you want to do something, you want to draw attention to something. It has to be, you know, um, striking, right? Yeah, I mean I didn't want to. Write another Facebook post or tweet, you <laughs> yeah. know, or go to Honglin Park. Yeah, because I mean it, it doesn't it's 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 not fresh or novel anymore. And and you know you're always constantly thinking of ways to draw attention to an issue uh, so that people are aware. So so we thought that was a very good idea. Let's do an MLT train and somehow the book was going to be launched, and it was a good way to also promote the book. <laughs> so so that's why we decided on on doing that. Yeah. And, and yes, and I think we got the effect that we wanted because it really went viral because the image was very striking. Yeah. So people who had never heard of Operation Spectrum before um, you know, were starting to ask about it. And then I also had friends because I also have friends who are not so politically inclined. And then they were like, oh, I never knew that that happened in Singapore's history. And you know what you did uh, kind of like made me want to find out more. So I had volunteers uh, at home who are also not interested in Things that are not migrant worker related, and they and they also found out about operation spectrum. So, so yeah. So I so so we achieved the objective, la, Yeah, in terms of getting more awareness spread about the issue. But of course, um, the government decided to go after us and investigated and charged charged me, la, Yeah, but everyone else was investigated and and that basically scared a lot of people. The investigation.
1: I think that that leads to this sort of mindset. So you know, listening to you talk about your different experiences, it was like a, you know, it's not like people were thinking about, oh, how can we go out and protest and make the largest amount of trouble or disruption in Singapore? It was always, it, it seems like it's a, no, I do this because it's right, and I do this because I feel strongly about this issue. But today, when we talk about, you know, organizing any sort of protest or collective action, my observation is that Everybody kind of knows in their hearts that this is what they believe in and this is what is right, but the discussion very often veers towards but what is allowed within the law. And that seems to be quite a significant departure from like 17-year-olds organising in the 70s where you're like, I don't know what the law is, but I just go and distribute these things at the bus terminal or I get on the bus and I, I boycott the fair because I believe in this and I want to articulate this opposition and, and today it seems like it's not that we don't know how to articulate the opposition but we we kind of talk ourselves out of it mm-hmm. and I think I, I remember like we had a conversation before Sing where you said like today Singaporeans seem to like strategize and rationalize and rationalize until to the point of paralysis because we'll think through all these laws we're like oh you can't do this or this will happen or you can't do that and that will happen to so the point where the conclusion is oh then, then do nothing <laughs> How do you deal with that? How do you struggle with that when you when you think about you know what to do right,
3: yeah, I mean um yes, there were struggles with that. Um, I suppose if I had started out because um, I started out in civil rights uh, in human rights work fifteen years ago, so if I had started out then, I probably would not have done this because um, uh, I wouldn't know what the consequences were, and I hadn't tried other methods yet yeah. so, so it's kind of like a, a learning journey for me also um, but there's also a part of me that says that even if there is value in standing up for something that's right yeah, and for something that is just and I think this is imp- important yeah. Uh, if what I'm doing doesn't cause any harm um, and it speaks truth to power and It helps to raise awareness about an issue, and and I stand in solidarity with people who have been tortured, detained, oppressed. I think it's worth it, yeah. Because these are, I think in Singapore we've become very very pragmatic, yeah. So so then everything has to have a certain kind of outcome, has to be practical, yeah. But I think there has to be a place still for ideals. And values that we believe in, and that we are prepared to take a stand on it, you know, even if it seems to be a very stupid thing to do. Yeah. So, I think there is value in itself of just standing up to be counted and saying that, you know, even though this is um, illegal or people don't approve of it, but in my conscience, I feel that there's nothing wrong with that. So, why can't I do it and be counted?
2: Yeah. See, from my perspective, uh, one thing that really concerns me today is sometimes how ridiculous our applications of the law, particularly, let's say, take the, the, your, your, your case, uh, Sullivan, your, your case of being charged for doing Skype. This, I mean, to me, it's utterly ridiculous because we are supposed to be a... Cashless and wireless and, and society, <laughs> and then we are charged for holding Skype. You know, just a few years ago, when this so called telecom thing was booming, and then uh, this video conferencing was like suddenly appeared on our horizon, that we were, we were talking about distant learning, we were talking about, we were telling everybody uh, you should try to use technology to to gain more knowledge, that kind of thing, and all kind of things, and so on. I was a proponent of this kind of thing, which means that, yeah, what, I mean, what advantage you have if you can bring an expert from somewhere in the distance and then having talked to an audience here, which we never have a chance of, of him physically.
1: That mm-hmm. would be
2: a great thing. And yet, you got Joshua. I think he, he by his own, by his right, by... Uh, he he's someone has, that has something to say and, and the very fact that there are so many people Who cram into that small space In Agora to, to listen to him Testify that people want to le- learn and listen to him What is that a problem? Why is that a problem? Yeah, and
3: the thing about the law That I've been convicted under It's called the Public Order Act And if you look <laughs> at the objectives of the Public Order Act It mm. says that it is to control um, and maintain public order. La. But that was an indoor event. Uh, nobody got emotional. It was a very rational discussion. I mean, some people might even say it was very boring. <laughs> 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 and yet I was convicted under that law simply because I didn't get a permit for someone Skyping in. I mean, he didn't even come to the country. Yeah, But this is how ridiculous things have become since your days in the 1970s, right? So, you know, even just Skyping someone you know, without a permit, you know, gets you convicted. How how ridiculous is that? I mean, now in this globalized society, I mean, we have so many. There's so many situations where talks are being held. You know, in the universities, on campuses, in education institutions, you know, foreigners speak all the time, and a lot of different views are being vigorously debated. So why, you know, why do we still have this ridiculous law that that criminalizes someone you know, talking to an audience through Skype? Yeah.
0: No, I mean if 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 it was uh I keep getting this this spam about uh you know conferences um you know one day workshops where you learn how to make a fortune buying and selling things online <laughs> you know and, and or you know I'm sure if, if it was like a, a a Skype conference with an international expert on uh, you know investing your money that'd be fine mm. right or even you know I think um we frequently have uh foreign uh religious uh, figures coming to preach at univers uh sorry uh, churches, right? Uh and of course foreign academics uh lecturing at universities and all of that is okay. But you know, to just have Joshua Wong Skyping to talk about democracy somehow that is a constitutes a threat to public order. And I think listening to what you said earlier, Jolvan, You know, I, I was thinking, uh, you know, and also teasing about the the sort of we use pragmatism in this very strange way. I think to mean to to do what is is so called practical, but what it actually means is minimize change, minimize, minimize disruption, which means preserve the status quo, which means support the people who are already in power and already have all influence and support current social structures right so it's actually a deeply conservative position but we call it pragmatic as if it's it's a rational position and it's not necessarily rational to support institutions when they are immoral or inhumane you know um, even if those institutions are legal right slavery was legal, it was slavery was legal the holocaust was legal you know, the Armenian genocide was legal. Stalin's gulags were legal. Colonialism was legal. We got rid of all of those things one way or another. You know, we continue to push back against narratives uh, which try and tell us otherwise. Um, and, you know, in Singapore, we, we became independent uh, through this act of, of um, standing up against colonialism, standing up for what is moral rather than what is legal. You know, the the colonial government tried to to cling on and and hold on to power and suppress anti-colonial independence, pro-independence movements by saying these movements are illegal. And uh, so, you know, it's the same thing today. If we see something that is immoral, it is, I feel, our right and our responsibility as citizens to try and correct that, even if it is legal. And you know to kind of take a step further, I wonder if if this whole obsession with pragmatism and efficiency—you know—we've been having discussions of late about how the world has changed so much um, from um, the '70s in the sense of, uh, especially, I guess, millennials um, are are obsessed with efficiency, and that comes out of uh, a whole neoliberal attitude towards returns and profit, and that kind of governs our whole society today, where you're only supposed to do things if they are efficient and if you can derive a clear profit. And that has seeped into issues which are unquantifiable, like human rights and, and morality, right? You'd only do, you know, the, the, the discussions that we have is there must be results, right? You want to, if you want social change, you must have, you must do something which creates results. But the problem with social change is it happens very, 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 very gradually and only through the accumulation of a lot of hard work by a lot of people over a long time. And then it happens all at once. You know, Martin Luther King and and his work built on a century of uh, civil rights activism. And he was just at the tip of the sphere, and at the end when they finally broke through. But he wouldn't have been there if not for all the people behind him who had come before him, for example.
1: I think it's also like a very narrow view of what is pragmatism, what is practical, and what is result. Because why why do we talk about pragmatism like it's an unqualified good and only this specific type of pro- pragmatism is an unqualified good? Like I find social activism, and human rights very pragmatic, because it applies to all of us, right? It applies to all the sorts of things that we are entitled to, and the protections that we are entitled to. So if campaigning for, say, um, you know, copies of police statements to be given to the person when they sign it, or access to legal counsel when you're arrested, I don't see why that is considered idealistic and not pragmatic because if we could get better due process for everyone, how is that not practical how is that not a practical good you know, in the long run so maybe it's not pragmatic in the short term if you get arrested and things like that but the goal that you're working for, I think if we could get to a point where there's you know access to legal counsel and proper protections and due process upon arrest and trial and there's no more detention without trial why is that not considered a good return? You know, that is a good return. And I'm willing to invest, you know, I might not have money to invest in this sort of thing, but I am willing to invest time and energy to get this sort of return. Just because it's not a short-term return, just because I might not be able to personally enjoy the return, doesn't mean it's not pragmatic. You know, so it while it is problematic to think only in terms of returns, I also don't see why we don't think about You know, that we are getting something out of this, right? People are not activists because they just like to make noise about things. You know, activists want something. Like, nobody is that free to just be like, I just like to be really loud (laughs) and troublesome. (laughs) You know, people want something.
2: Actually, my concern is slightly different from this perspective because pragmatism or, or what type of end result you want. Maybe it's the government concern Since I'm not a government, that's not my concern mm. uh, My concern is that our society has been premised on the rule of law right? This is a very important thing Because it, for society to work and to progress to like, Rule of law is very important But the rule of law must premise on two things The, the principle of the law when you can get Skype and you get charged for, under the law, it shows something wrong with the law. So to me, that is not the rule of law. That is actually an assault on the rule of law. That means you're using the rule of law as a way to curtail certain things that you don't like. This is, to me, not progress. Right? This is not progress. We have been asked to recite this pledge that we have since the day we go to school to build a democratic society based on a number of principles that we are talking about and we, therefore we call this principle uh, we subscribe to this principle and call ourselves a country, a nation, a society so these are very important principles and any law must be based on this principle Right now, what we have right now is that we are using, we are making laws. In fact, to attack a lot of this principle, and this is, I feel that it's a very dangerous trend that we are going because how? Then what happened to our original idea of building a democratic society based on justice, equality? Yeah. This, this, this is. I think that my concern is more this particular. Direction we are taking.
3: I think the argument on pragmatism also comes from this fear of losing something. So that's why people often say you should um, do your advocacy or your activism in, in a way that is more palatable, have dialogues, you know, don't make so much noise, yeah, don't, um, don't shame um, those in power. So um, when, you, when, when you, and these kinds of engagements are seen as more constructive. Whereas if you were to raise awareness or do a protest, it is seen as being a rebel rouser, being a troublemaker. Yeah, so, so in Singapore, there is, this is also how we frame pragmatism. Yeah, but it comes from um, the fear that if you were to do things in a way that's not socially desirable, you might lose your job, you might not get the promotion you want. Or it will be difficult for you to look for a job in future because people see you in a certain way that is undesirable. Yeah. So this kind of activism then becomes stigmatized, and then people don't want to engage in it.
0: Yeah. I mean, and and you know, it's it's very interesting you mentioned that because studies of social change explicitly mention that social change is not possible without someone taking on that role of the rabble rouser, right? Um, and I'm referring here, of course, to Bill Moyer's uh, theory of social change, where he talks about the different roles within social change, uh, Bill Moyer for our audience is someone who worked very closely with Martin Luther King and later, you know, articulated the four roles that are essential for social change. And they are in a nutshell, um, the advocate, the helper, the organizer and the rebel. And the advocate, of course, uh, he, he focuses on communication with, with the people of power, right? So you think of the civil liberties lawyer that, that, you know, sues the government for something or or the lobby group that works with the government. Um, the helper is someone who directly helps those in need. So, you know, they, for example, they address, uh, you know, racial or gender discrimination or they teach Um, You know, they teach migrant workers their rights, they help underprivileged to write their CV, you know, so on and so forth, right? Um, And then there's the organizer. So people who aren't on the front lines, but they're essential to creating institutions or organizations that work smoothly. They bring people together to get them into, uh, to create a smoothly functioning machine that can create bigger change than just on the personal level. And equally important to these three roles is the rebel. And the rebel himself or herself is, is, or themselves are, is really important because they draw attention. They um, are the ones who stand up and, and get um, awareness of these issues, right? They may even be the ones who, or they are the ones who cause the commotion and, and organize the protest um, and rally people together for change. And the fact is the people that you know, we think of most as uh, the heroes of these, these uh, social movements, Gandhi, MLK, Nelson Mandela, they were the rebels. And those are the people because they risk so much. But social change cannot happen without people in all these four roles. And so if we want to talk about pragmatism right, or what is practical or achieving results, someone has to play the role of the rebel. Someone has to lead the public campaign. Someone has to be out there causing a commotion, right? And so it is really important. And if you only have, you know, if we listen to to some people say, oh, you know, just do things quietly behind the scenes, social change will not happen because there is no public awareness and there is no rebel leading the the awareness campaign.
1: Yeah, I think Bill Moyer was saying that obviously the ideal situation is if a single person could switch between all these roles at times of, you know, what makes more sense strategically. But then he also concedes that it is very difficult, close to impossible, for a single person to be able to embody all four roles because obviously personality comes into play, you know, skills come into play. And so the the next best scenario would be to find people with these different personalities who are suited to these different roles and work together in some way so that your strategies might differ, but you all know that they, they intertwine to some greater goal. And the danger of that, the, the pitfall of this is that when people who play these different roles start to turn on each other, so when, for example, people who are more used to behind-the-scenes engagement and dialogue start to turn around and point at you know, more public sort of rebel role people and say, you know, you're destructive, you're you're spoiling it for everyone, you should shut up. You know, when you start to police each other and then the rebels say, oh, you've sold out and you're co-opted and, you know, you can't be trusted anymore. And that's when things start to break down. And so I think in Singapore, we do have that. We do have um, these sorts of discourses of what is a good activist and what is a bad activist. And a lot of these discourses I find are very devoid of um, the powerful. So we start to fight amongst ourselves about what is good strategy, but then it, the, the element of the power that's above us all is extracted. So, you know, when nature activists start to tell anti-ISA activists that, oh, you know, you shouldn't be so loud. You should go into dialogue sessions. It's it's very much part what's lost on that conversation is that a government will never dialogue with anti-ISA people. You know, they might dialogue with nature people to talk about how to conserve a park or how to do nature um, environmental assessment, but they're not going to talk to anti-ISA people. Why would they, right? You know, that, then that's why your strategy needs to be different. And I think we don't talk about that enough in mm-hmm. Singapore. The power dynamics is missing.
0: And of course, the, the people with power will use that to divide um, activists and people who want social change, right by rewarding people who do things their way and work with the, the government or the people of power while you know saying to them, hey if, if you want more of this access, then disavow the others, disavow the rebels, disavow the people who have these other uh, causes and divide and conquer. You know So we need to be conscious very much of, of the, as you say, the dynamics of power. It's really important.
3: In, in in my case, um, actually, right after I was arrested, there was an event that was organized by by a group of supporters for me at Honglin Park. yeah. so um, so I think it's 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 not so. I mean, I think maybe like ten this is ten years ago, like if Juan, you know were to do a similar thing, you probably would not see a similar action. So there has been some change, I think, in terms of how people respond. yeah, but um, but I think, in terms of how people can support, I mean, support in whatever ways in which you are comfortable, right? It doesn't always have to be an outward show of support. Yeah, It can be sending a Facebook message to someone, you know, saying, hey, you know, I'm hanging there. I, I got a lot of these kinds of messages on Facebook and WhatsApp. Yeah. So, and then there was also the event that I talked about, people showed very publicly their solidarity with me. Yeah. So, um, and, and people that I meet, you know, when they see me in social gatherings, you know, they, They they encourage me, yeah. So so I think do it in what solidarity doesn't have to always be done in a way that's outward, or because we all have different styles, you know, different ways of expressing ourselves. So do it in a way that in which you are comfortable, and I think this this really really
2: helps. From my perspective, I think the awareness is a very very important part of this. I think we, we. like earlier on, I mentioned this question of commitment to the rule of law. Right, I think this kind of awareness is very important to as a society because we all want society to work in Singapore. Most are us are very scared of law because law is used as a way to penalize you, to the way to to restrict you, like kind of thing. So basically, it, it is wrong because I think law should be something that the principle of law is very important and in Singapore we because maybe we don't have the the kind of debate that other society have in the parliament when they make a law in Singapore we hardly debate so a lot of the principle of law was not debated that means why do we have something like that why do we why do we have why do we sometimes allow some very ridiculous situation to happen and we just accept it and swallow it and, because, and say that it is the law. Uh, see, today, a lot of people, everything you do, the first question they ask, is it lawful? Mm. I mean, they don't understand what is the law. I mean, they, they don't question that what is the principle of the law, but they question whether is it is lawful, the implementation of it. So this, this to me is that I think if we are allowed this thing to continue, my feeling is that maybe we have reached the peak of our society. Right? Then from now onward, we will be going down. That is my, my 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 projection of it because unless we can con because law should be reviewed, revised with the new set of set situation that comes around and so on. So if we don't understand the principle behind certain law and so on, how do they? How do you review and review this? So I I think what is needed in our of society is really more debate there, there must be a principle behind yes uh, if the principle behind is not correct at that point of time then over time we must change it right yes. mm. uh, we must not say that mm, there is law therefore it will not change for
0: forever i think you make a really 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 important point you know it really cuts right to the heart of it that uh uh, you know, First of all, of course, laws are, are open to uh, abuse. Mm. Right? But more deeply than that, if we become a society which only obeys le- the letter of the law, this is a deeply, deeply disturbing society. Right? The, the, this, this obsession with only the letter of the law is very corrosive to society and its good functioning and our humanity in general. You know, if you if you imagine a society where people only obey the letter of the law and not the spirit, you know, then everyone is constantly out trying to 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 screw over everyone else. You know, everyone's looking for loopholes. It becomes uh, a place where where it's almost very uh, Hobbesian, every man for himself, right? And that's not. Conducive to building a civilized, well-functioning society, and um, you know, one that that where people can work well together to um, achieve something greater than the the collective parts of you know collective individuals, right? Um, and and this is kind of where we've been headed for a while, you know. As as I think I mentioned in previous podcasts, uh, but more broadly, I think it was also mentioned in that book, "How Democracies Die." You know, governments slowly pass laws which criminalize um, things that they don't like, and they rule. They, they lean more and more on this idea of rule of law by passing laws. Um, you know, as we've seen in Singapore, criminalizing anything which they don't like, especially uh, normal, ordinary politics and the normal, ordinary rights of the citizens. Right, all on the argument of rule of law, and over time. We respond to this incentive structure by becoming obsessed with what is lawful, what is not lawful, rather than what is right and what is wrong.
1: And it, and it's not just like some sort of airy fairy idealistic thing, right? It it also has a direct impact on ourselves. So if we don't talk about these principles and these values and civil liberties and why they're they're important and why they should be at the core of all these laws that we have, then you know it's not so simple as, oh, if I'm just quiet and I'm good, I will never break the law. Because the creeping authoritarianism means, even if you don't break the law, the law is creeping closer to you, you know, like, it used to be, oh, you know, if I'm if I'm a good person and I don't go to a protest of more than five people, then I'll be safe. But then now the law has come to you and say even one person is not possible. So what what are you going to do if we don't speak about these values that should be at the heart of everything, then one day you'll find that you know more and more things are criminalized, more and more things you know are against the law. And do we just basically keep quiet every time and like take it, and then have less and less space? Or at what point is it? At what point should Singaporeans say, "No, this is really just too much. This doesn't make sense."
2: Implicitly, as a society, we already have that recognition. That's why we have two sets of law. One is called constitution. And then the other one is law made by, by the so-called parliament on a the, on the, on the regular basis, mostly for administrative purposes. Now, and for constitution, you want to change anything, you need a super majority. And for the other administrative law, usually it allows the government, which normally must have the majority, otherwise it won't be the government, just to change the law or make a law. So, Generally, I think we have that structure, but it's just that we don't quite understand. So we, right now we have we are seeing a lot of new laws that is made, like the recent law, this kind of thing, like the uh, the Public Order Act kind of thing. It's completely against our so-called supreme law, but we don't care. I mean, our legislative, our politicians, our legislative don't quite care about this this idea. This constitution was there not for nothing. It was there because we say that we are going to form a new nation.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that is the principle that we abide to, that, that we call ourselves a, a community and we call ourselves a country. Uh, of course, at that time, Singapore wasn't educated enough, so we adopt the Indian constitution mostly. But the, the problem is that that is basically... The idea that, that that you we come together under the Supreme uh, what do you call it? A, a, a Supreme Law which is constitution and civil liberty is actually featured very strongly in that, that particular one. And that is something that I think should come back to to come back to be the our our, our main focus when we make law, instead of the other way around.
3: Yeah, that's why it's often said that Singapore is a country that's more ruled by law rather than rule of law. And, um, and even when we see the way that the government implements the law, it's very selective and it's also very arbitrary. Mm. If we look at um, what's happening with um, Terry and Daniel with the online citizen saga, um, lots of people say all kinds of you know, defamatory things about our leaders or make you know, make these kinds of allegations. Yeah, but the government was very selective in wanting to um, pick on them and charge them. Yeah, so to, to, to make a lesson out of them. In the same way that Leong Zihen, when he shared the article by TRS, there were probably like a hundred, hundreds of other people shared that article, but they chose um, to target him. Yeah, so this kind of arbitrary singling out of um, people to persecute, also goes against the spirit of the rule of law, yeah, because you are not applying it consistently, and it's very clear that you have an agenda and you're going after people that you don't like, yeah. And this just creates, just, uh, just reinforces, right, the culture of fear, and makes people and make people even uh, less likely to to want to speak up, and to do something about society because they fear of
2: being punished for it. I have another perspective on law in Singapore it, here in Singapore we tends to see law as the demand of the government on the citizen actually law should be the other way around too maybe law should be also the demand of the citizen collectively on the government right because we, we don't we, we, we don't have this eh? so maybe i just have this
1: mm.
2: interesting idea since the uh, Election coming very soon. Maybe the next election, we should collectively demand that whoever want to become the next PM change the social study syllabus to constitution, constitution study. Uh, then when we we vote for him. Yes. Uh, if not, then because constitution to me is is pretty important, right? So. I think we can make this collective demand. And in fact, if uh, maybe not the next PM, uh, whoever wants to be your MP, uh, maybe you can do that. Mm. Because right now, our MP is supposed to be representing us to make law. Now we see law as demanding on us more than mm. we demanding on them to go and make law that is workable for us. Yeah. Right now, the the, the the concept of law is is, is very strange to me.
1: Yeah, um, we've seen laws recently that impose more restraints on citizens than on yeah. governments in power. So, for example, like Personal Data Protection Act, that does, that covers companies, which is great, but it specifically exempts the government, right? They can take your data. Uh, contempt of court restraints citizens, even those of us who are just discussing on Facebook, but there's a specific exemption for the government if they think it's in public interest. Um, you know, there are prohibitions about having political films, but then there's power given to IMDA officers to just break your door and come in and search your house. So there's a lot of restraint on people but not restraint on power. Yeah,
3: yeah and it's difficult to sue the government and, and ask for judicial review for these kinds of cases too because um, it would be expensive. Yeah, So um, citizens who try to um, file an application to say that a particular law is unjust or unconstitutional, May have to face um, paying costs you know, to the government when when they lose. So this prevents people from from wanting to check on the government. Yeah, you know, and checking on the government is, is an, it's, a, it's the essence of democracy, right? So all these obstacles are put in the way to prevent you from being an effective check. Cheaper way is
2: to. Change the government, right? Eh? <laughs> 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 yes. These <laughs> are very expensive, eh? It's cheaper to change well, the government.
0: I, I mean the you know, one of the points I keep making is if even if we change the people in government, the moment they get in, they have all these levers to grasp, right? Will they behave differently given that there's so many incentives around them to behave the same way as the previous government? You know, I don't think our government, like our ministers wake up in the morning and 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 decide, yeah, I want to 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 really you know put the screws on all these activists, but the incentive structures around them, the information they get, you know, that leads them to conclude, oh, these activists are going to destroy the way of you know our way of life and and wildly overreact to to what we all do and also there's also society needs to change. we need to do this long process of changing values, educating people, helping people understand the importance of all these principles, hard-earned, hard-won principles of, you know, human rights and social justice and how they need to be interwoven into everything we do, checks and balances on the government and democracy, you know, the point of democracy and you know the protection of people's rights and all that needs to be educated. Otherwise you're just going to get a government which Eventually, over time, starts to behave like the previous one. You know So yeah, changing a government helps, especially if the new people coming in campaigned explicitly on change. But ultimately, institutions need to change, and institutions change when the people change, when values change, when societies change. And you know, to bring it all back to to what we're talking about, protest is really articulating the the priority of what is right over what is the law right and and that's why it's so important
1: i mean it's not healthy for society to have a situation where the sort of governance and freedoms that you have is entirely contingent upon like the the whims of a small group of people or the personalities of a small group of people because maybe we change the government and the next government is fantastic and then that's that's great for all of us and they don't abuse the institutions and and you know everything is happy for a while but then what happens if that government changes again and then the next person is not such a nice guy and so you know it's not good for us to be lurching around based on the personality of whoever has the most power at the time and so that really requires very kind of Systemic structural change, rather than changing the people and the power, and that also requires recognizing that activism and protest is part of that system. It's part of that ecosystem. You know, we sometimes we talk about activists in Singapore as if activists are only anti-PAP, mm-hmm. as if if the PAP is out, there will be no more activists left. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's just that's just a go. But you know, it's it's more than that, right? Like activists. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I hang around activists and I hear criticism of political parties across the board and I hear unhappiness with political parties generally. And And, you know, you really realise that people are interested in the issues. They're not interested in the political party in power. Like, if the Workers' Party came into power and migrant workers still don't have, like, enforced rest days, you're going to get migrant workers activists who are just as loud and noisy and upset as they were when PAP was in power. And so we need to actually be aware that this is part of the ecosystem and you can't have well-functioning democracy without civil society.
0: Uh, so on that note, I think that's all the time that we have today. I'd like to thank my guests, Tanti Singh and Jolovan Wam. Thank you very much, guys. And of course, thank you, thank you to my co-host, Kirsten Han. Thank you.
1: Yes, yeah, always interesting discussions.
0: Uh, be sure to tune in next week to Southeast Asia Dispatches, our fortnightly uh, podcast series bringing you news interviews and commentary from around Southeast Asia. And please do check out our website, newnarrative.com, for more stories from Southeast Asia. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by joining as a member at newnarrative.com join. It's only 52 US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. This is PJ Thumb wishing all of you a, a fantastic week ahead. See you next time.